on the day of his enlightenment, Buddha turned around from where he was sitting under the tree and faced the tree and remained sitting for seven days thanking the tree for providing the container in which his enlightenment happened. So we're going to just complete our practice by spending one minute <clears throat> looking at the statue of Buddha and beaming appreciation for all the wisdom that has come into our lives because of his teaching. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. Welcome, everyone. And uh, maybe we could begin, since we can't go around and introduce ourselves, uh, if you could just introduce yourselves to the people on your left and right, we'll begin that way. She gonna go around? <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> this is our seminar on befriending the shadow. And just a couple of practical things before we begin. Our lunch time is between 12.30 and 2. And we'll have a 10-minute break in the morning and the afternoon. 
The book that I'm drawing from is called Shadow Dance. And this and my other books are in the back on the right side. And then on the left side, I have the CDs. This was an eight-week class that I gave in Santa Barbara. And it was put on CDs. So there's um, a set of those in the back if you're interested. And I also brought uh, some sets of CDs from other classes. Uh, one on relationships, one on fear, and one on how your early life affects your adult relationships. In case you think that does happen. Um, <clears throat> and then uh, I also have uh, two of my books on that left side, uh, translations. One is in French, one is in Italian. So if you're interested in that, uh, it's all in the back. So let's begin with looking at the subject of the shadow from a little different perspective from the one we usually begin with. And by the way, I will talk about the um, definition of the shadow from the point of view of Jungian psychology. But first, let's um, just look at how the one thing that we all seem to desire in a healthy way is connection. And we began our lives in connection with our mother when we were in the womb. When we were born, the connection remained important because we needed to be nursed and taken care of. So connection seems to describe something about us as humans that is certainly universal and reminds us of love itself because at its most simple, lowest common denominator, shall we say, love is about connection. This connection had to be confirmed by the caretakers around us who showed that they honored the connection and the way they honored the connection was by providing a space in our family experience for safety and security. Thus, in order for us to survive, safety and security became crucial as needs that we came in with and we hoped and probably did find that our parents provided the resources so that safety and security could occur. So everything is going fine so far. Then it started to become clear 
that we would have to do something to maintain this safety and security. That if we wanted them to go, them, our parents, to go on loving us and liking us, we would have to do some things and not others, act in some ways and not other ways. It started to become clear that there are certain features of ourselves that are acceptable, but there are also some features that are unacceptable, and the acceptable ones lead to continued safety and security, and the unacceptable ones lead to distance, possibly rejection, possibly abuse, possibly uh, a sense that the connection is threatened. So we have the need for connection, and this applies not only to us, but to all of nature, because the whole ecology is about connection, as John Muir says. You find one thing in nature, and then you notice that it's hitched up to all the other things. And that will be true of us, too. Each of us is hitched up to our families, the people around us, the people in relation, that we're in relationship to, and so forth. And that in order to maintain the connection in a safe and secure way, with some people, it becomes unconditional, and you feel safe and secure just as you are, no matter who and how you are. And with other people, it's very conditional, and you only will feel safe and secure with them if you maintain uh, a certain level of behavior that's pleasing to them. When you notice that the safety and security are unconditional from someone, that is trust. What is trust? I feel safe and secure being just who I am, and you will include me in your connection unconditionally, and I feel mistrust when I notice that you will only maintain your connection to me under the conditions that you have set. So what's a baby to do? <laughs> he would have to notice which behaviors and traits, behavior and traits, are acceptable. And these he would express. Notice which ones are unacceptable, and these he would have to not get rid of, but hide. Oh, you can't be this way around here, so I better not be this way around here. And all the 
features of ourselves that have been placed in hiding become a hidden self. And uh, Carl Jung, who came up with this idea of a shadow, and I'll explain his definition shortly, said that we hide so many features of ourselves that they become a splinter personality <clears throat> inside of us, and the unacceptable part <clears throat> of us is shown to the world as a persona. In other words, what you look like to the world around you and what you want to look like. And the hidden part he called the shadow. This is our topic from the perspective of the beginnings of our life and how the shadow started to form. It would be impossible not to have a shadow because <clears throat> even if our parents were unconditionally ex acceptant of us, we would have noticed right away among our peers and at school that there were features of personalities that are unacceptable. And so we would have, we would in any case have started hiding parts of ourselves. Now we do this hiding just automatically for safety's sake because we want to create our own safety and security and it all becomes unconscious. It's something that you, um, you so disavow that it goes into the unconscious part of you. In other words, it's not available to you. And you even deny, if anyone ever did bring up one of these characteristics, you would even deny that you are like this. So this is a very mysterious thing about us. That we actually um, have a little, uh, uh, little treasure chest inside which contains coins that are not the coins of the realm and that are um, that, that have value but there's nowhere here where they can be spent because everything that you hid was part of your real self so of course it's valuable and the work the practice, the possibility, is that we could occasionally find one of these coins and bring them back up into consciousness and find a way to appreciate and make use of their value. And that is part of what we'll talk about today. So I'm beginning here. Um, because it's where we all began. And I don't want to give the shadow a bad name. I want to have us find a way to appreciate and value it.
<clears throat> so I'll, I will open up for questions, but I'll just say one more thing so we can uh, take a look at more of the definition of it. So, of course, he came up with the, he, Jung, came up with the image of a shadow because the shadow is cast by us, but we don't notice it. So it is connected to us, but we don't quite see it. This shadow contains <clears throat> two types of unacceptable features or traits positively we will hide the wonderful gifts and talents that we have and that the world doesn't seem acceptance of and negatively we hide the traits that most people would find unappealing or despicable, not acceptable. So let's say you were in a family in which um, the accent was on um, being the kind of a person who would um, be um, working class like your parents, but you had an interest in ballet. And they just thought, well, that is completely unacceptable. So you would have possibly <clears throat> hidden some of your creativity and sensitivity because it didn't really fit in the family you were in. And at the same time, if you were uh, selfish and greedy, that would seem, that would be unappealing within the family unit, so you might hide that. But since everything about us has to be addressed and processed and resolved in order that we complete ourselves and feel like uh, something isn't hanging on that requires attention, the psyche has to have a way of bringing these hidden qualities back up into consciousness. And it has two very specific ways that we all know about. One way is in dreams. Conscious mind now shut down. Unconscious can have a field day and can speak up. This unconscious presents figures and characters who symbolize our hidden positive qualities and who symbolize our unappealing qualities. So you dream about somebody that uh, seems very saintly, or you dream about somebody who's a criminal, you, you may be meeting up with your own 
hidden positive or negative side. So this one is hard to understand because it's all in symbolic language. But fortunately, the psyche has come up with another way of knowing our shadow, both positive and negative. This one is much easier to understand. It's called projection. <laughs> and this word in Latin means to throw something forward. So to throw something, I don't want to hold on to it myself, so I throw it towards you. So the projection happens when we strongly admire someone who has the gifts that we actually have, or we strongly dislike someone who has the traits that we ourselves don't like. So we don't like these traits in people outside of us, but when we strongly dislike or strongly admire, that's a clue that we are projecting our own positive or negative sides. Sides of what? Sides of our shadow, also called the dark side. Not dark like a complexion is dark, but dark in the sense that it's hidden, unconscious, not in the light, can't be seen. And every single person has this dark side, and it contains a, both a positive dimension and a negative dimension. In order to become people who are whole, we would want to bring up as much as we could from this unconscious up into consciousness. Now, how would you know that um, you admire, you're admiring someone or disliking someone and it isn't the shadow? That's very easy to understand. If the qualities in someone else simply inform you, then it's probably not the shadow. But if the qualities affect you, A-F-F-E-C-T, then it's most likely the shadow. Simple example. You have a friend and you notice that no matter what you do with this person, he has to be the one who's in control. Want to go to a movie? Yes, but I want to see such and such. Oh, okay. Get to the movie? Oh, yes, but I have to sit in the back. I can't sit in the middle. Fine. I have to sit on the edge. I can't sit in the... so forth. And you notice this, but you like this person. And you simply notice it, and you just it's just like water off a duck's back. Whatever. Sit wherever you want. doesn't matter. Not a shadow issue. But if this person gets on your nerves, can't stand them, uh, why is he like this, 
and continually upsets you, even obsesses you at times, it's probably your own stuff. Because the hidden splinter self has to find a way to present itself and is doing this for a healthy reason. It wants to come up into consciousness, finally make the appearance that it was unable to make in early life. It still wants to make the appearance. It still wants to be loved and feel safe and secure and feel the connection. I want to be loved as my whole self. And so the psyche is helping us find out what is in this whole self. And the way it helps us is by presenting exactly the people, this is the synchronicity of it, who will bring up your dark side. And today we're going to concentrate on how this happens in relationships. Because you will choose the partner who will bring out your shadow. During the romance phase, you imagine that the... <coughs> In the romance phase, you <clears throat> imagine that the other person has all the positive qualities. And then when you get to the conflict phase, you notice the negative, and sometimes they're exactly the same. <laughs> like what was so cute in this phase is a big pain in the neck when you get here. Now, from Jung's point of view, and um, technically, the shadow is about people of our same sex, but when you look at this in a wider context, you realize that any person can bring out your shadow qualities. And often, by the way, I've seen this many times, in a work situation or in a family, there's the one person who is the stressor and brings up everybody's shadow. Everybody reacts to this person. And it's a very fascinating thing that some people just, um, shall we say, incite the shadow to riot. <laughs> and uh, they're usually a persona non grata, but they're playing a very important role in the human story. Now, I want to make one connection to our Buddhist understanding, and then we'll open up to questions. Remember when I said that, uh, let's say, positive qualities that some people have, negative qualities that other people have, obviously this is all subjective, and you are admiring the positive, and you are repelled by the negative. But this is the equivalent of the work in mindfulness, because in mindfulness we are noticing how sometimes we are drawn, attracted 
to certain thoughts or people and then become attached. And of course, this attachment in the noble truths is the cause of suffering. And then we're also repelled, and so we distance ourselves from that which we don't like. Mindfulness offers, the, offers a practice in which you can come up through the middle of these, not be caught by attraction or repulsion because you have become a witness. Not only of the way other people behave or the way certain thoughts grab you, but also a witness of yourself and how you respond. And we're trying to learn in mindfulness how to respond as the fair and alert witness who is not pulled into attachment nor pulled into rejection, but instead sees it all with equanimity. One of the four um, qualities that we work on in loving-kindness practice. So the, the equanimity is the ability to be present without being overly drawn into something or overly pushed, pushing something away. So our practice has a direct connection <clears throat> to how we befriend the shadow. And that is our work. It's, it's not to get rid of the shadow, it's to make friends with it. <clears throat> um, Ken Wilber has a really good way of putting this uh, topic of how you, how you see your positive shadow. And I'm quoting, we build our pedestals upon which other people stand. We build our pedestals out of our own potential. So there's your potential, but you, you're using it as the pedestal to hold up somebody else. Oh, I really admire this guy because he's so brave. I really admire this woman because she's so assertive. Well, those are your own potentials. And what you've done is you've turned them into a pedestal for someone else to stand on. This would be the end of a door <clears throat> or deplore. Now, there is no shrine. It's just a mirror of the best of me. And there is no dungeon I'm trying to stay out of. It's just the deepest part of myself that I want to bring up into the light. And we're going, today we're going to learn ways to do this befriending.
especially in the context of um, our life with others. So, quick reminder of what we just talked about, and then we will have some questions. So we're starting with this quotation by Shakespeare from Richard III, Be Not Afraid of Shadows. That's our theme for the day. <clears throat> we begin our life with the desire for connection. We notice that to maintain the connection with safety and security, there are certain things about ourselves that we would have to put into hiding. When we do this with the positive features of ourselves, <clears throat> it becomes a splinter personality called our positive shadow. When we do it with the negative, <clears throat> it's the splinter personality of a negative shadow. <clears throat> but all of this has to somehow uh, present its bill. So it does so by showing itself in dreams and in projection. In projection, we find out our own admirable qualities by what we admire in others. And we find out our own negative qualities by what we strongly dislike in others. It's not literal. If you admire a sculptor, that doesn't mean you have sculpting powers. <clears throat> what you're admiring in the sculptor is how he or she found a way to show in a physical form the creative imagination that is within him or her. That's what we're admiring. And for us, it might be a poem or a painting, not necessarily a sculpture. You know it's not the shadow when it simply informs you, and you can suspect that it is a shadow when it strongly affects you in relationships, during the romance phase, we mostly meet up with the positive shadow. Um, this statement by, uh, by um, oh boy, no, not Ken Wilber, um, the psychi psychiatrist, uh, uh, Irvin Yalom. In romance, we find the mirror of our own beseeching gaze. You're gazing out beseechingly for what you want, and you find somebody who mirrors it back. Oh yes, this person has just what I want, not realizing that at the same time, some of what you're looking for is already in you, and uh, that is a feature of romance. And then in conflict, you'll see more of the negative shadow. And then finally, um, we're connecting it with our Buddhist practice. In mindfulness, we become the witness with equanimity who neither adores nor deplores, but uh, as Trungpa Rinpoche says, sees everything as ornaments of being. 
These are all the ornaments on the tree of being. And they do not have to turn me toward attaching or turn me away as one who distances. I can simply be with what is with equanimity. That word in Latin means equal spirit. So you have an equal spirit no matter what you're looking at. All right, so let's uh, see if there are any questions, and then we're going to have a short exercise that will help you put some of this into better perspective. And we have a microphone. Uh, yeah. So would you say, generally speaking, that the more narcissistic the mother, the more the baby tends to have to hide? Uh, that's, a, <clears throat> that's a very good point. Yes, I would say that. <clears throat> because the narcissist doesn't make much room for you. It's all about fulfilling his or her own needs. <clears throat> you would have to be with the kind of parent who put his or her needs aside for yours. <clears throat> and some parents who were not ready to be parents did not have this quality or skill. So we're going to feel compassion for them. We're not going to be blaming. But we're going to have to make the best of whatever happened to us. So I have a question. I, I would imagine that when you experience judge, <clears throat> judgment of another mm -hmm. person as opposed to compassion, that's the shadow being projected. Yes. Yes, all the, um, all the alternatives to mindfulness so here's the here and now mindfulness is direct contact with the here and now just as it is, like a headline. But the mind automatically editorializes on this headline. It does this by judging it, fearing it, desiring it, <coughs> comparing it, evaluating it, etc. Trying to control it. Coming up with fantasies and illusions about it that don't really match what it is in reality. Etc. Each of these, when we notice them happening as we're sitting mindfully, let's say, and you notice that a judgment is coming in, we simply notice this judgment as a witness. Oh, that's in me. It's in me to judge what's happening. And I gently let that pass through, and I come back to the here and now just as it is. 
what, what is this here and now just as it is? It's just me breathing. So that's why we go to the breath as the best um, reminder of how to get back into the present. Because breathing can only happen here and now. It's not past or future. So that's why we keep coming back to the breath. And or notice that there's something scaring me about the thought I just had or about whatever is going on. And I simply notice the fear and come back to my breathing. And that returns me to the here and now. So each of these embroideries of the ego, control, evaluation, illusion, comparing, so forth, all of these are, as it were, the shadow side, the dark side of being present, of simple presence. This is how I make sure I won't be present. I go into um, detours like these. And, um, and each of these is also a clue to what is in our overall shadow. So if you notice that your favorite resort is to go directly to judgment and criticizing of others, let's say, that is a clue that that is in the part of you that uh, is probably interfering with connection. Because these are also the obstacles to full-on connection. So this isn't just about the mindful sitting isn't just about sitting and meditating. It gives you information about you in relationship. Healthy relationship, one in which no judgment, no control, no comparing. Yeah. <laughs> Being truly present, no judgment, no evaluation. So from the desire comes the clinging, that's the attaching. And then from the fear is the, comes the avoidance. Yeah, I have the next question. Yeah. Um, I was, I'm really intrigued about what you said about there are people who are stressors. I'm particularly interested because I think I am one. People don't react <laughs> not, not neutrally to me. They either like me or don't like me. So I'm interested in learning about stressors. Okay. What, well, you would know more about it than me, then. What, <laughs> what makes you so? What makes you stressful to others? Have you figured anything out? All right. Well, that will create stress because that's. <laughs> but the question is, why are some people be highly, you know, like in a in a in a group? Or how does a person become a stressor? Each person in the group seeks a role. For instance, you could have the role of a leader, the role of a follower. There's also the role of the victim. 
There's the role of the hero. There's the role of the stressor. And you start to play this role because it seems like uh, this is what keeps you connected. And sadly, we keep ourselves connected even in these negative ways. So this would be like the teenager who's reacting to the family stresses by um, becoming delinquent, uh, committing little crimes. This creates a connection to him. You have to go to the police station, you have to pick him up, you have to sign things, you have to bring him home, you have to keep him in his room, etc. And in his mind, he's getting the connection that he wanted. Unfortunately, he's getting it in a negative way. But as we will see when we talk about, you know, why we put up with painful situations, why we stay in shadow relationships, um, this is a common practice among humans. We want the connection so bad, we will even, um, we will even put ourselves at risk in order to maintain it. So there's something in us that uh, is not quite geared to happiness. It's geared more to survival. This is exactly what Buddhism is about. How do you move from doing what seems to maintain the connection but hurts you toward looking for the kind of connection that brings happiness? That's why its purpose is happiness not survival, or not um, heaven after death. Yes, oh, well, do you have the, oh, he has a microphone, okay, and then you can pass it over. Yeah. This is about an idea that I think just died completely <coughs> as I was <coughs> listening to you just now. <coughs> I, so I look at the <coughs> statue of the Buddha and, you know, the statue looks so serene and looks like it doesn't need anybody and has no need for connection. But then I think about the history of the real Buddha, who shortly after enlightenment went out and started looking for a healthy connection. Yes. <clears throat> and remember the way um, his words are recorded. Uh, not only I... But all these things participate in enlightenment. In other words, he acknowledged the connection instantly. Not only I, but all these things, trees, flowers, rocks, they all are participating. It's not just that I become enlightened. The enlightenment was not, oh, I'm enlightened. The enlightenment was, oh, everything and everybody's enlightened. We just don't notice it. That's the enlightenment. That's what makes this a, a source of wisdom. If he just said, oh, now I'm enlightened. I'm up, pull up the ladder. But then it wouldn't have gone anywhere. But it isn't like that. It's, oh, oh, we're all up, but we, I just had a moment of noticing it. Now I want to help everybody else notice it too. That's the point of it all. And what, for what reason? because this is the source of happiness. 
Um, since we carry our own shadow with us everywhere, and since we project that out into all sorts of situations, where one is in a situation where it's not blatantly abusive but might feel unpleasant and painful, from a place of mindfulness, um, how would one... You know, I keep wondering in those situations, I have the feeling that wherever I go, I'll bring the same shadow and project it. Mm -hmm. So why isn't this situation just as good as any other to work it out and come to a point of forgiveness in? And there's yes. that point of discrimination where how does one see what is for the highest good of all and oneself in judging all those in-between situations that carry you know, some positive, some negative, some abuse, where you're trying to decide the pain uh, of you know, just interacting. Is that just my shadow to be worked out and understood my projection, and won't I just take that somewhere else? Mm. So it's, it's that, how does one find that point of discrimination from the point of mindfulness and equanimity? Discrimination between well, between in a situation leaving or staying or uh, with a group of people um, where you can see the projections and you can see the choice of oh, not wallowing in one's pain and choosing to be happy in spite of the imperfection of the world around you or moving on to something better, thinking that something better might be there or carrying one shadow with one wherever one, you know, there's a, there's a sense that it's all just my shadow and my everything. And so why not work it out here as well as anywhere it else? It is, it's all projection. So, it's, so I guess I'm asking mm. for ideas on that fine point of discrimination where even from the highest place one can look, it's not clear whether to stay and work it out or to leave and find other. Okay, I do have a way of answering that, and um, I gave you a handout which we're going to go through, and uh, this will uh, speak to what you're bringing up, okay? And we're going to go to this shortly, because that's a very good question. And, and by the way, um, how, what is the choice that leads to the highest good? It's the one that reflects the four immeasurable qualities of metta, of loving-kindness practice. So, so the, the simple thumbnail sketch of what is for the highest good, it's what brings happiness to me and as many as possible. What has compassion toward me and all? What has loving kindness in the way I approach myself and others? And what finally leads to equanimity? ends in repose, what will end in repose as opposed to what will continue in dramatic upheaval. 
So we always have these to go back to, immeasurable because they are limitless in us. That's why the word immeasurable. I have limitless, in other words, in other words, my, my way of bringing happiness, compassion, loving kindness, and equanimity into the world is limitless. And that's why the practice goes from bringing it to yourself first, then those you love, then those to whom you're indifferent, then those with whom you have difficulty, and so forth, and ends with to everyone, all beings. That's a way of saying I have a limitless amount and you're practicing this by saying may all beings be happy. So this is how we know what's for the highest good in our particular practice. Does this make sense to everybody? Okay, but where is the microphone? Okay. Um, I guess my question is a little bit um, similar to hers, but it seems like there's, there's two worlds. There's the internal world of us learning to accept our shadow and us being able to recognize others and our projections and theirs and all of that and being able to accept that and accept them. But there's, we don't live in an unconditional world, and every situation has conditions, and every person has some kind of conditions. So at some point, we have to accept the consequences if we choose to reveal our shadow in any given situation. Um, there will be consequences, and everyone changes. You go to work, it's one thing. You go to a club, it's one thing. You're at home, it's a different. Um, there's different rules in every single setting. Mm -hmm. But I guess my big question, um, I mean, that's a lifetime of figuring that one out, but <laughs> <laughs> my real question is, let's suppose you have a relationship, and that person really does want to work on the relationship, but they're completely clueless about this entire realm of shadows and projections and unwilling to really do any research into it. <laughs> and you've become aware of it, but to have a, a, a really an intimate relationship, there needs to be the place where they can accept your shadow and understand it. What can you do to help that person? Let's assume they want help on some limited level. <laughs> but. Uh, what can you do to not deny? I mean, there, we can all learn to accept our shadow, but never ever show it. That's kind of, I don't know if that's really accepting it or not, but how can you help someone else see your value if they can't see it? They're so ingrained in whatever they've been programmed and socialized into of, you know, what you shouldn't, shouldn't be in. Um, and they themselves struggle in this area. Uh, I, I understand what you're asking, and we, of course, teach by example. So we show over and over again in our relationships, once we're doing this kind of work, that we are aware that there are certain features of our personality that might be stressful to others, and every once in a while, especially in unguarded moments, these traits come out. And when they do, we can say out loud, oh, this comes from the part of me that I really don't like. It's my shadow side, and I want to acknowledge it, and I want to work on changing it. 
And when you say this over and over again as showing that this is your practice, then hopefully the other person will kind of get the idea. But some people have an ego that is so strong and so tightly constricted that they cannot allow for new information about themselves to come in. And these people will often be quite charming when we first meet them <laughs> and so become husbands and wives. <laughs> and uh, all you can do is uh, continue your loving-kindness practice and, you know, uh, do your aspiration. May, he, may I let go of my ego May he let go of his ego. You're saying, saying this silently. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, you're just trusting that uh, at some psychic level it's going to make a difference. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, you go ahead, because I, I had seen okay. you before. Yeah. I'll, I'll talk loud. Okay, I'll go ahead. Try. Yeah. Um, I would like to go back to what we were speaking about, the self, happiness, compassion, loving kindness, equanimity. Yeah. And I'm hoping that this comes out in a way that makes sense. Why is it for some of us that the happiness of others, the compassion towards others, loving kindness towards others is so much a part of our being and that the happiness, compassion, and loving kindness to ourselves is completely dependent upon the happiness, mm -hmm. compassion, and loving kindness of others. Why are we in that cave that we've created? You people sure don't ask simple questions, that's for sure. <laughs> I understand what you mean, and yes. I mean, a good example is ourselves and our children. Yeah. I absolutely could not be happy if my son was very unhappy, that's for sure, no matter how much practice I would do, because it matters so much. But I'm not uh, worried about it. I'm just thinking, oh, well, that's just how parents love children. Mm -hmm. And reminds me that my father was able to be happy no matter how unhappy I was. <laughs> so now I know that, oh, okay, so this is how a father loves, and I'm glad I was able to do this. So I wouldn't be greatly worried about it. It only becomes a worry when uh, it goes into codependency, and that's what we're going to talk about with our little handout, so we'll get to that. But you're bringing up an important point, and it's certainly a mystery. And some of it goes to our religious background, in which we were taught that it was selfish to want something for yourself, that everything should be for others. Kind of a misunderstanding of the golden rule, which of course says, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. So you are equally taking care of yourself. And the other statement is, 
love your neighbor as you love yourself. But we didn't get that second part. We got just love your neighbor. So some of this is, uh, you know, what we've been taught that needs to be examined and cleared and placed into our new enlightened view. So that's part of what we're trying to do today. Now, somebody had the microphone. Yes, go ahead. Hi. Can you Hi. hear me? Um, this, we all started this conversation uh, talking about connection, and I wanted to see if you could talk a little bit about um, how fear of connection, what that says about the shadow side, if, if I'm feeling disconnected and liking it, and, or not liking it, but feeling comfortable in disconnection, and knowing that I really want connection. Can you talk about what that means? In, this, in the realm of the shadow. So you're saying you really want connection, but you're afraid to seek it out? Is that the idea? Um, not, not even conscious fear, but just kind of my realm is, is a, a little bit of disconnection, isolation. Introvert. Introvert, yeah. And so what, what does that mean in the context of if we're do if you're, the example you used is the delinquent adolescent is really wanting connection, what is the, what's the that what's the isolation and kind of introversion and disconnection, how is that playing into being connected? Uh, well, you're bringing up the point um, that really would help us understand ourselves as a combination. So every psyche is a combination of opposites. Good way to look at it is if you think of a coin, it only has value for spending if it has heads and tails. If you have a dime and the one side of it is blank, and there, there's something, something wrong with it. You, you, in order to have value, it has to have both heads and tails. Okay, so the valuable psyche contains all the opposites. So there's the desire for disconnect in us, and then there's the desire to connect. So everybody has both of these, and the best way to work with this is to be able to accept both. I don't want to be with people all the time, and I don't want to be isolated either, so I want to budget my time so that some time is given to connection and some time is given to being alone. And I do this every day, that creates a, a healthy combination, gives value to my experience. Disconnection would, in the sense of rejecting others and pushing them away, is the dark side, the shadow negative side of wanting full-on connection. But 
the point of our discussion today is that we all contain the feature of rejecting others, being disconnected from them, experiencing isolation. We all have that in us. And what we want to do is work with it because we're trusting that like all opposites, it does contain value. And so we're going to try to find out how to make contact with the, with the value of even these negative inclinations in us. That will be um, how, we, how we're going to discuss befriending the shadow, which we'll do after our break. So you're bringing up an important point. And it does, it's not really introvert, extrovert. You could say everyone is both an introvert and an extrovert, although one of these, because everyone at times wants to be alone and everyone at times wants to be with others, but one of these will be prominent in your personality. So you always, and the other is, the, is in the shadow, and so you always want to design a lifestyle that gives you the chance to go to the other once in a while. Okay? Yes? Let's just have one more question and then we'll take our break. Right here, and then we'll have other questions after. Uh, yes, I, I'm still a little bit hung up on the words um, informs and affects. Um, when someone else's behavior informs us, uh, but we're not hooked by it, yes. then it's not the shadow. But when it affects us, and we are hooked by it, then it is the shadow. Yeah. But sometimes that process of being affected by someone else's behavior, I'm thinking on a larger scale than, say, a family or a personal relationship, but say it's a societal relationship, the President of the United States or whatever, and we're listening to that person on television, for instance. And this happens to me. I find myself ranting about what that person is saying and, and completely disagreeing and getting quite emotional about it and you know, saying things like throw the bum out and all that sort of stuff that we, I think, all do and have done in fairly recent years. Um, what is that? Is that, is, that, is that the shadow or is that just... Myself telling myself that I need to do something to change the situation. I mean, it's, it's sometimes the effect can inform us of the need for change and that we need to act on that. I, I, it seems to me, at least mm -hmm. on that level. So yes. What, what is? Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that is one of the questions that does arrive arise. Um, so what she's referring to is the sense of say injustice or inadequacy in a political leader? Injustice in a, something going on in society or inadequacy in a political leader? And this creates a strong reaction. If this reaction takes you in the direction of tikkun olam, you know, to our to uh, restore the world, to look for a way to uh, act politically for change, 
So, so I see that this is happening, and what can I do? Write a letter to my congressman, decide how to vote in the next election, etc. Whatever form that may take. Then it is simple indignation about injustice. When it leads to the ranting and raving and hate of someone or disgust with someone, now I have the shadow side arising, which is impotent. This is potent. This is impotent. Potent means power in Latin. So it becomes simply a response to the collective shadow because we all feel, um, we all might feel the same way you do. But when it doesn't go anywhere, that's how you know that it's simply the shadow. This time, you're check this time you're cluing in on a collective shadow, not just an individual one, which is our topic today. <clears throat> individual, personal shadow, not collective. And, the, and the, the alternative to inform and affect. Political change happens because you've been informed by what you saw on television ranting and raving that doesn't go anywhere comes from being affected by what you saw, but then you did not take action. So when you see Mia Farrow on the television and she's really doing something about trying to awaken consciousness about Darfur, she's on this side. She's working toward a change because she's indignant about the injustice. This is, this is how she has taken the shadow of, of a collective society and found a way to bring it into the light so that everybody could see it and then work toward change. Whereas if she only noticed it, felt indignant, and stayed at home and just kept disliking what's going on, that would be the equivalent of it, it's, it's the shadow disturbing her equanimity. And it's, it's not going anywhere. It's just, it's just uh, empty, impotent, uh, insipid, doesn't, doesn't really work to bring about change because we wouldn't we wouldn't have the quality of being responsive to what's happening politically if we didn't also have the ability to join with others to make some kind of change so that's why we're feeling the way we're feeling but instead of bringing it to that place as in the example of Mia Farrow Instead of doing that, we're just letting it die right there as we watch the television. So now we're in the power of the shadow. 
when we have that kind of response. Whereas this person, the, the one who is working towards some kind of change, is not in the power of the shadow. This person is trying to bring it into the light so that it can become something else. Okay, so let's take a short break and then we will come back and do our little exercise and answer other questions. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.